0: Welcome to another edition of the 801 Podcast. I'm Kent Garrett. I'm in upstate Catskills, New York, in the town of Roxbury. It's about 150 miles north of New York City and 71 miles southwest of Albany. Good morning. It is Thursday, February 1st. Coming up are we headed for a war with Iran, plus over 1,000 black pastors are asking President Biden for a ceasefire, and we'll talk about self-censorship in the media, plus Caitlin Johnstone has a essay titled, Everything Israel Wants to Destroy the Hamas. Those stories and more coming up. We begin this morning with commentary and opinion from Douglas McGregor. He asked the question, are we headed for war with Yemen or Iran or both? So the the
1: biggest story in the news right now is the situation in the Red Sea does not seem to be cooling. Uh, Now we've had an attack on a U.S. military base in the country of Jordan that resulted in three dead Americans and 34 injured. What is your assessment of this situation? And is the United States starting down a path towards war with the Middle East again?
2: Well, it's, uh, it, it might as well say the Middle East, but primarily we're trying to forge a path to war with uh, Iran, because that's what the Israeli state wants. And to be frank with you, we have no strategy towards the region. Uh, We have no policy. What we are essentially are instruments of Israeli national policy, and we take our instructions from them because we have no interest in supporting this campaign to effectively expel or kill all Palestinian Arabs in Gaza and ultimately also on the West Bank. And that's effectively what is now begun by the Israelis. We certainly don't have an interest in a war with Hezbollah or Iran, contrary to what many politicians are telling the American people. So I think the biggest problem right now is that the mainstream media, the financial sector, uh, and the government are all 100% behind this unconditional support for Israel. And they are proselytizing in favor of that. Most Americans really aren't paying attention, as we've discussed before. I think Americans are rightly focused on the border. Uh they're they're definitely seeing that, and that's why you're seeing the uh left now under Biden and and in general the Washington swamp change its tune. Uh they're they're starting to say, Well, you know, we want to close the border, but you know, we just have to come to a compromise. Oh, that's a lot of nonsense. We all know that. And that should have happened years ago. Now people are openly discussing military power on the border. Well, that should have happened years ago as well. We did that for hundred years from eighteen 1840, forty-six to nineteen forty-eight. There are reasons for all of that, but the bottom line is we're no better off. So in the meantime, uh, it's a case of watch what this hand does, but don't pay attention to the other hand. And, uh, now that we've had this attack on, uh, it was actually, as I am told, designed to hit Al Tamf, which is a large American base inside Syria, the watchtower that was struck and the Americans who were wounded or killed were just literally on the other side of the border in Jordan but that was not originally the target and remember the Jordanian government has approved our presence in their country the Syrian government has not so we are illegally inside Syria and those soldiers sailors airmen and marines who are involved in Iraq and Syria they have no mission uh, except to essentially improve security for Israel which is kind of laughable because if anybody knows more about what's happening in Syria and Iraq than we do it's the Israelis their intelligence is excellent and then secondly a the little bit of oil that is squeaking through the system from Turkey into Israel is pretty much going to stop mr erdogan has dragged his feet on it but very shortly the israelis will be without any oil or natural gas anyway and we are very very vulnerable and and to be blunt if if the iranians had done this they would have hit us. Uh, This this would not have been an accident. They have precise tactical and theater ballistic missiles. We're dealing with Arab militias. The Houthis are an Arab militia. The Shiite Arabs in, in Iraq are part of militias. That's what you've got in Hezbollah. All of these people are Arabs. And even though they may be Shiites, they are in solidarity with Arabs in Gaza. And as long as we do what we're doing in Gaza, which is to provide limitless quantities of supply for the Israelis in terms of ammunition, spare parts, aircraft, intelligence, even now we have lots of Americans in uniform on the ground in Israel, as long as we continue to underwrite this uh, terrible policy, well, we're going to be attacked by Arabs in the Middle East. It's very simple. Now, we made a terrible mistake with the Houthis because we beat our chests and said, we will punish the Houthis. We will defeat the Houthis. Well, the Houthis have turned out to be a lot tougher to take on than we imagined, which any of us who knew anything about the region knew to begin with. That is terrible terrain. It's very difficult to run around and identify the targets, find the active missile systems and the fighters and do any damage. And these people have been through years of warfare with Saudi Arabia and us. Remember, we backed the Saudis. This produced a terrible famine in Yemen that killed hundreds of thousands and did enormous damage. These people are hardened to it. They're ready to fight and fight and fight. And they're going to do whatever they can to make us miserable until we change our policy. So if you want this to stop, Americans need to answer the question. Are we comfortable supporting Israel's policy in Gaza? If we're comfortable with what they're doing as a nation, then that's fine the government should make it abundantly clear what we're doing. And that means we've got almost a half a million Arabs living inside uh, the Gaza Strip that have no homes, nothing over their heads, not enough to eat, suffering from all sorts of diseases as a result of bad water, have no power. And uh, everyone in Israel is celebrating because they want to eliminate these people. They see them, after all, as has been told repeatedly, as animals that deserve to be expelled, expunged, exterminated. Interesting. Uh, Are we comfortable with that? I don't think most Americans are. But most Americans are not being told the truth. They don't really see what's happening. So we have no policy. We have no foreign policy. Our armed forces are now essentially the pawns of Israel and whatever Israel's lobby in the United States wants. And remember, the Israeli lobby has almost complete control of everyone on the Hill. And they also control the thinking and the policymaking but beyond that, you know, the, what happens in the media? And the media crushes anyone who speaks up and says, well, perhaps this is not a good idea. Then you are branded as an anti-Semite. The ad hominem attacks begin. If they can, they attack your sources of income. They try to disenfranchise you, destroy your bank accounts, and so forth. This, this is the way things are played right now in the United States. That's why I say this, this is not American foreign policy. Uh, This is Israeli foreign policy, and that's what's running the show.
1: Yeah. Um, Coming back to some American uh, foreign policy, yesterday, uh, Senator Lindsey Graham and John Cornyn of Texas called for President Biden to to, to directly attack Iran, bomb Mm -hmm. them into the ground. Tucker Carlson called them effing lunatics that will get us into an out-of-control war. Tucker Carlson also warned the American people that the Biden administration wants a broader war with Iran. Uh, what are your thoughts on Tucker Carlson his comments, and then what are your thoughts on Lindsey Graham and John Cornyn calling for the the destruction of Iran?
2: Well, first of all, I and many others have been warning of the danger of a wider war with Iran that could rapidly become regional, and end up including the Russians and the Chinese and potentially others all aligned against us this is not news this is a very real danger it's also not news as i pointed out in an article that i published in the american conservative a week ago there was two parts one friday and then saturday on the perils of american foreign policy and it goes into detail about why we militarily are not prepared for a major regional war whether it's fought in eastern europe in ukraine or fought in the middle east or anywhere else our stocks are way down. They're largely exhausted in many key categories, and we have no surge capacity. We can't turn to industry and say, turn out thousands of missiles and millions of munitions overnight. We don't have that capacity. So if we're drawn into this thing, we will rapidly exhaust our stocks. Those things are just completely ignored because the individuals you mentioned who are obviously benefiting enormously from money that comes out of the defense industry, as well as other foreign lobbies like the Israeli lobby, they have no interest in uh, what happens to us, what happens to the American people, or what happens to our soldiers. If they had any interest in the welfare of soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines, they would have demanded the withdrawal of these soldiers from Iraq and Syria and uh, everywhere else in the region a long time ago, because there are so few of them, they're in isolated bases, they're easy targets. Now, what's changed recently, and this is the most, most dangerous aspect of the whole thing. Up until now, certainly since 1991, on the ground, we have never faced formidable opponents. Opponents that were organized into armies, into air forces, into air defenses. Most have had no naval power at all. What we faced are loosely organized, irregulars, militias. We call them terrorists because they support causes we don't. So you always brand you're an opponent terrorist. You know, your friends are superheroes, men in white hats. The people you hate are terrorists. These are not uh, third-rate opponents anymore. I- Iran is a very powerful state. There are 90 million people living in that country. You're talking about a very high level of technical expertise. <clears throat> they have built tens of thousands of rockets and missiles the israelis will give you the briefings if you ask for it and tell you what very fine quality work they do the high quality of their engineers and their capabilities the iranians can launch enough conventional warheads on missiles to flatten most of israel that's what people don't seem to understand and they can target us with great precision just a couple of weeks ago we watched as they killed a mossad agent in his house excuse me with his family and he was in close proximity to the u.s embassy u.s embassy sustained no damage they also went after others isis targets and these isis targets were also affiliated with kurdish interests because they were united by hatred of hezbollah and iran so they targeted these, pl- these places and people with enormous effect and accuracy. That can be applied against us. They can hit us in Qatar. They can hit us in Kuwait. They can hit our forces at sea. They can hit us all over the place. And we haven't even begun to discuss <clears throat> the substantial Hezbollah presence that is in Mexico. And for that matter, there are also Islamist elements from the Sunni side operating in Mexico. Large numbers of people driven out of Syria and other Arab countries have found a place to settle in Mexico. Some of those came as a result of being refugees, but large numbers also came there deliberately. This is is a war that will have more than one front against us. We have no idea how many of these people have been introduced into the United States through our borders. We think we have recently nine million illegals, but we may have as many as 22 to 30 million in the country so you you look at the equation and what you have staring you in the face is is the very high probability that if we turn this into a regional war by ultimately attacking iran or looking for some excuse that we can you know present to the american people as justifying the use of force we're not only unprepared for it we're going to have to fight on all sorts of levels against all sorts of people and we're talking now about kinetic matters but there's also the cyberspace and the uh, vulnerability of our power grids i mean we could go on and on what about our nuclear power stations all of these things fall into that category and i think americans are being lulled into a false sense of confidence americans have believed for too long that war is something that only happens on someone else's soil oh we we bombed country x last week well you know they probably deserved it nobody knows Nobody cares. You always have a third of the electorate that cheers whenever somebody is bombed. That's dangerous. That's the sort of insanity that got Britain into World War I, that dragged them into World War I, where they killed almost 800 million people from Great Britain. That doesn't even include the imperial forces from overseas. The, The point I'm trying to make is if we go forward as people like Lindsey Graham and Senator Cornyn want, we risk war on a scale that we have not seen in this country since the civil war here and abroad i don't think anybody wants that and i don't think we need it but then again you know i hold the minority position in washington because right now everybody says absolutely kill and drive those arabs out and by the way i don't support arab islamist organizations that advocate the destruction of israel either you know that that's dead wrong. I wouldn't support Hamas under any circumstances, and simply because I don't think millions of Palestinians should be further removed from their homes and driven into exile or killed makes me an agent of Hamas. I'm not. I want Israel to survive, and I'm afraid, and I've said this from the very beginning. As soon as the seven October event occurred, and it became clear that the Israelis were only moderately interested in the hostages, this was a trigger that they longed for so that they could begin this process of driving all the people that are Arabs in Gaza, in the West Bank, whether they're Muslims or Christians is irrelevant, out of the country. Now, I understand that. But when I discussed this on previous occasions with them, I said, be very, very careful. I don't think you can do this as long as the world is watching and the world is watching. It's not going to accept this. Well, that's where we are. And right now, Israel and we and the United Kingdom are alone. Yeah. We're isolated. Gee, what a surprise.
0: The Reverend Frederick Haynes and at least a thousand other black pastors across the country are lobbying for a ceasefire through open letters and meetings with White House officials. The minister, Reverend Haynes, spoke with Michelle Martin about the impact this might have on Palestinians and on U.S.
3: politics. Reverend Haynes, thank you so much for speaking with us.
4: Thank you for having me, thank you.
3: You are the senior pastor of a fairly large congregation in, in Dallas, would you just tell us a little bit about the people who were part of your congregation?
4: Yes, uh, we have a congregation numerically in excess of uh, Ten to twelve thousand uh, members on Sundays. We will see anywhere from uh, two thousand to four thousand, and that's not to mention the online viewership, mm-hmm. uh, which is much more. So uh, it's a growing congregation. It's also a young congregation and um, a vibrant congregation that is community conscious and very much in tune with. The relationship between Jesus and justice.
3: So I'm going to ask you to go back to October 7th. Do you remember what you preached on that Sunday? Because as I imagine, especially given the congregation that you have, they would expect to hear from you. You know, at a time like that.
4: Well, I do remember the theme uh, and that and and my intent and that was to provide uh, some kind of balance. On the one hand, I wanted to ensure that uh, comfort. Uh, was provided to the victims' families, and all who were triggered uh, by such an event. Uh, I have a couple of members who were in New York uh, on 9-11, and Mm -hmm. so I knew that there would be comparisons to 9-11, and the horrors and the evil that occurred on that day. Of course, uh, that language has been used Uh, subsequent to October 7th. And so I felt it necessary to provide that kind of of, of consolation. At the same time, I found it necessary to make sure that we not make the mistakes that were made in response to 9-11 in response to October 7th. And by that, I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, I think history has recorded that Uh, In the aftermath of 9-11, there was such a determination uh, to exact revenge uh, that the response was disproportionate and too many innocent lives were lost in response to 9-11. 9-11 was horrific. Uh, There is nothing that will ever uh, assuage what happened on that day. And so my prayer was, my sermon was, on the one hand, uh, let's offer comfort. At the same time, let's learn the lessons of history, because it's well known if you do not learn from the past, you end up repeating it. And in many instances, you magnify the mistakes that were made in the past.
3: And I take it. The fears that you expressed in that sermon have, in fact, come to pass. Would that be fair to say from your perspective?
4: Unfortunately, yes, it's it's been horrifying to watch uh, the response again, disproportionate and not downplaying in any way what happened October 7th. And I hope that we can erase the narrative uh, that you just because you feel the response has been disproportionate, it does not mean that you are erasing uh, the memory of the horrors of what happened on October 7th. But again, uh, to see hospitals, uh, places of refuge being blown up. So yes, my worst fears have been realized and my worst fears are a living nightmare for those who are living in Gaza.
3: You are one of more than a thousand Black pastors in the US who are calling on the Biden administration to support a ceasefire in the uh, in Israel's you know war on, on Hamas. How did this kind of organization this decision to sort of make a statement as a group come to pass? How did that happen?
4: Well, many of us, of course, are a part of group text and we began to express in our communication I would discuss with what was going on and as the notifications increased as the news broadcast uh continued to uh show the nightmare unfolding uh in what so many of us have labeled the holy land uh we became increasingly impatient with the response of this administration and so what began as informal text messaging conversations going back and forth, uh, some of my beloved colleagues said, "You know, there's no way that we can uh, just limit this conversation to our group text. We have to stand. We have to say something. We have we have too many people who believe in us for us to be poor stewards." of our leadership responsibility and then on top of that many of us have uh inroads in the administration and so uh we asked for a meeting with the administration so that we could express our concerns in a way that was respectful but at the same time reflecting a sense of urgency uh, over what we consider to be a state of emergency.
3: You mentioned that uh, um, a number of pastors have met with the administration, who they meet with. Right.
4: They it was representatives with. from the administration. It was not the president himself, uh, but representatives, those who uh, I would say are, uh, they have it, they, they have authority, uh, but of course they are representatives. We felt we were heard, but at the same time we felt that in the aftermath of the meeting, business as usual continued. And so given that, uh, we felt that the only thing we had to do now was to look for ways to exert as much pressure as we could uh, from a moral perspective, uh, because that basically is what we are doing. You mentioned the 1000 pastors whose names were in The New York Times. Uh, Since that Particular piece occurred, I cannot tell you how many other pastors said, I wish you had included me. I wish you had reached out to me. So uh the numbers are much more.
3: Reverend Hayes, what what do you think justice for Palestine means in this moment? You know, after everything that has already transpired, what is transpiring now, what what do you think that means? And and the and the second question to that would be do you think justice for Palestine can coexist with security for Israel?
4: Without question. My predecessor at Rainbow Push, the icon Reverend Jesse Jackson uh, coined the phrase, security for Israel, justice for Palestine. Of course, it's remixed during protest in the streets where we say no justice, no peace because there is a relationship between justice and peace. There is a relationship between justice and security. And so I think when Reverend Jackson says security for Israel, justice for Palestine, of course, justice has a restorative component to it. Justice has a component to it that says we have to rebuild, we have to restore what has been broken. And so right now, justice for Palestine not only includes a ceasefire and the safe passage of humanitarian aid, but also rebuilding on the terms of the indigenous people, the land that has been destroyed, restoring it to them, ensuring that they have their land on their terms. If they have their land on their terms that have been that has been rebuilt, the hospitals, the homes, the schools, all of them have to rebuild.
3: Well what so so what exactly do you want President Biden to do? Because in fact, look, he has, you know, he famously, you know, went to Israel, the first sitting president to, to visit Israel, you know, at wartime. You know, he hugged the Prime Minister Netanyahu, but he also and other members of the administration have also said what you've said, which is learn the lessons of nine-eleven be proportionate in your response don't seek vengeance
4: well th- where your treasure is there will your heart be also you can say that but you continue to fund the carnage uh we all know that this country gives a huge amount of resources to israel that has gone to that has gone to fund a lot of what is taking place right now and so We have the moral authority, but also the fiscal responsibility. If we wear those two and say, uh, Mr. Netanyahu, we will no longer give you financial resources. We will no longer give you military resources and stand by watching the carnage unfold. That is a profound
3: statement. It's one thing to talk it. It's another thing to walk it and exert it. Is there any part of you that worries that the criticism of President Biden makes it easier for former President Trump to get back into office.
4: Of course. And I'm asking Mr. Biden to learn the lessons of history. 1968, Lyndon Baines Johnson had done some amazing things, domestically. We have, because of Lyndon Baines Johnson, the 64 civil rights bill, the 65 voting rights bill, some wonderful things took place, but his foreign policy disrupted the country in such a way that it set the stage for another administration to come in. And they came in, ironically, on a Southern strategy that was race based a Southern strategy that was white supremacy fueled. And I'm simply asking Mr. Biden, as you proudly call yourself a Zionist, as you proudly say, uh, you stand by Israel almost by any means necessary. That is offensive to too many, first of all, from a humanitarian perspective, but then you have Palestinians living right here in this country, Who are offended uh, by what? By the stance of Mr. Biden. And so, yes, Mr. Biden has done some good things. That cannot be denied. In this instance, I'm concerned that he's getting in his own way. And when he gets in his way, He may well be getting in the way of the future of democracy or the lack thereof in this country.
3: Some people look at the same history you just cited and draw the opposite conclusion. The progressive left having abandoned LBJ is what paved the way for a a, a Richard Nixon who had zero sympathy for and interest in their goals. But there are those who would say, you know, that's exactly why you need to put aside those feelings and support this president because, because his, the, the alternative is worse, who has zero sympathy for the, right. the Palestinian cause and, and most other things that progressives care about. And, and what do you say to that?
4: Yeah, I say that exactly. Uh, the other side would be disastrous. Uh, as a matter of fact, it would be multiplied uh, what is going on right now, that cannot be denied. I also will clap back and say it's not that uh, the center left abandoned LBJ. LBJ abandoned the principles and values of the center left. And we're saying right now, Mr. Biden has abandoned the principles of redeeming the soul of America. He's abandoned the center left. And so we're calling him back. Learn the lessons of history, Mr. President.
3: Are your congregants specifically talking about the election year and, and you know, uh, the fact that it is an election year, does that come up in your conversations? And are they, are they talking to you about Trump and are they talking to you about Biden? And if so, what do they, what do they say?
4: Oh, without question, uh, and this is, the earliest, I've been pastoring 40 years, so I've seen a number of presidential election years. This is the earliest that I have experienced an energized conversation about the election I've ever experienced. And I have to be honest, it's, it's I won't say it's frightening, but it's concerning uh, in light of the stubbornness that is perceived as it relates to the administration and their posture uh, in the Middle East. And so I'm hearing conversations and there are those who are saying, oh, I'm going to vote. And I'm not crazy enough to vote the other side. I'm not going to vote for Mr. Biden. Uh, I'll go third party. Well, my clapback is, well, they don't have enough money to mount a serious threat. And so a vote for a third party is a vote for uh who you really really don't want and so that escalates the conversation well i'm still not going to vote for uh Mm -hmm. mr biden and uh you know so it's i mean the conversations are how should i put it uh the temperature is a lot higher than it normally is uh because there are those who are really really concerned i also have uh, members who will say Uh, Well, it's back to voting for the lesser of two evils. I hope Mr. Biden does not want to be considered the lesser of two evils, but that's what many are saying.
3: You know, at the start of the war, there was this poll taken by the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. It found that 48% of black respondents said at that time that they didn't feel connected to either the Israeli or Palestinian side or plight, I, I guess I would say. Yeah. Do you think that that's changed?
4: Oh, without question, uh, that has changed. Uh, especially, I would wonder if that poll involved or engaged young people. Because when I look at the young people in my congregation and in the community, the young people are on fire. Because again, this is a generation that on their cell phones, they have notifications coming at them all of the time and those notifications i promise you continue to enrage what they see as this country being complicit in what is going on because they feel a connection with what is happening to the palestinians so why
3: uh, is that why do you think that is
4: they can also relate to because we are only uh three and a half years removed from the summer of george floyd We are only three and a half years removed from Breonna Taylor and what happened to uh, so many uh, during that summer where we saw in real time such horrors. And so you're talking about a, a, a response from the world community, especially young people in the world community, to the horrors they saw in the United States that was taking place. And I promise you, the, that same, that same demographic, yeah. they have a moral compass, a moral consciousness, that says, with Martin King Jr., injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. If you don't
3: have justice for all, there's not justice at all. As we are, as we are sitting now, thirty thousand people at, le- at at least thirty thousand people have already been killed, yes. and you know, huge swaths of the Gaza Strip have already been destroyed, and hundreds of thousands of people have already been displaced. And I just wonder in, in some ways, is it is it almost too late?
4: Well, I believe it's not too late. Uh, I think it becomes too late if this lingers, it becomes too late if we do not in a responsible way negotiate healing, a healing process to a strip that has been devastated and broken uh it's time for America to step up and provide moral clear leadership and if that takes place and healing begins then the good news is things can turn around but healing and I must say this must be on the terms of those who have been broken those who have been hurt and not on our terms imputing what we think healing is as an empire that participated in so much of the brokenness. Now to the
0: subject of self-censorship in the media. Aaron Bastani is from the Navarra Media Group, and he explains why the truth is really uttered when it comes to covering the occupation.
5: The media cover the Israel-Palestine conflict a lot. The deadly conflict between Israeli forces. Conflict is escalating in Israel at this hour. The
0: UN has expressed fears of a full scale war. This
5: is the story of al wahta Street. A ceasefire agreement has reached. The fragile
0: the ex- ceasefire ex- that is holding.
5: What happened in Jerusalem and what's happening in Gaza was the last straw. And yet, despite all that coverage, few people feel particularly informed about the nature of the conflict and what is really going on. But what if that was the point? What if almost all of this content isn't really meant to inform you and simply telling the truth was a radical proposition? And what if that wasn't the result of a conspiracy or a censorious state, but a choice made by journalists and media organizations themselves? This is Emily Wilder, She posted this photo to her Twitter feed on April the 11th after she was hired by the Associated Press. A month later, she was fired. According to them, that was because of violations of AP's social media policy during Wilder's brief stint there. So I had a look at her Twitter feed, specifically between April the 11th and May the 21st. And to be honest, there wasn't much there, except this from May 17th, where Wilder wrote, Objectivity feels fickle when the basic terms we use to report news implicitly stake a claim. Using Israel but never Palestine, or war but not siege and occupation are political choices. Yet media make those exact choices all the time without being flagged as biased. Was this the tweet she was fired for, simply highlighting the importance of using the appropriate words to convey the reality of a situation to the audience? And isn't that what journalism is meant to do? And what does it say about the mainstream media and its inability to accurately report the Israel-Palestine conflict that such a thoughtful question gets you fired? You see, the media has a problem accurately reporting Israel's occupation of Palestine, and that is what this is because it insists on seeing the conflict as one between two equals stuck in a cycle of violence, something which, if you ask most people, is centuries old. So the problem is, human nature, or the backwardness of non-Europeans, or the idiocy of religion. Any conclusion is fine as long as it isn't political and doesn't implicate choices made by governments. But the thing is, there was peace in the Middle East, and for a long time, certainly compared to Europe, with Muslims, Jews, and Christians living in relative harmony. This came to an abrupt end when it became increasingly clear that Jewish settlers from Europe were intent on creating a new state And taking an amount of land wholly disproportionate to their numbers this was the revivalist nationalism known as zionism combined with what some describe as a settler colonial ideology which sought to displace the land's indigenous arab inhabitants in 1948 britain departed what was still called palestine where it had been in charge since the fall of the ottoman empire leaving a vacuum and that was followed by a major conflict during which some 700,000 Palestinians, around half the country's Arab population at the time, were forcibly displaced. Now, the Palestinians call this the Nakba, the catastrophe. And to this day, a number of ultra-nationalist Israeli politicians, such as Zippy Hotevoli, deny it happened at all. It was, by any measure, an act of ethnic cleansing, with multiple Israeli figures, including future Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion, the godfather of the Israeli nation, quite open about the need to transport the Arab population. This was called Plan Dalet. Some historians say it was defensive, others that it was offensive. But what we know for certain is that it displaced huge numbers of people, with the aim being to ensure a Jewish majority over a substantial part of the country.
0: Zionism understood itself as both a national movement and a settler colonial movement. They
1: understood that there was a population there. They understood it was the overwhelming majority. And the early Zionists,
4: as much as they wanted to ignore the Arabs, understood that they were there and that they would have to have to do something uh, in order to create a Jewish state.
5: This takes us back to Wilder's tweet and how journalists used Israel, but never Palestine, war, but not siege and occupation, militants, but never soldiers. When was the last time you heard the term ethnic cleansing or apartheid used regarding Israel in the media? Think that's hyperbolic? Well the NGO Human Rights Watch disagrees and yet such terms rarely, if ever, find their way into reporting. Now take a look at this tweet from CNN Jerusalem correspondent Hadass Gold celebrating her sibling joining the IDF. Surely this is by any measure taking sides? And what would happen if a journalist shared a picture of their sibling on a Palestine solidarity demonstration, or just wearing a kefir? From Emily Wilder's fate, we already know the answer. This is how media censorship functions in a supposedly free society. It works fundamentally in two ways, through incentives and disincentives. Carrots and sticks. First, the carrots and how the media filters the wrong kind of people out of the profession. From kindergarten to university and then work, we're filtered for obedience, and the media is no different. Journalists may like to think of themselves as fearless, but on big questions like this, they often aren't. Indeed, they are precisely where they are because they don't want to break with the line. They do what they're told, and they don't ask difficult questions.
4: How can you know that I'm self censoring How can you know know that journalists are?
0: I'm sure you believe everything you're saying. But what I'm saying is if you believe something different, you wouldn't be
5: sitting where you're sitting. So, for instance, you can't see Israel as a settler colony, even though some of the very people who founded Israel, or the godfathers of Zionism, say so. Why? Because that isn't the kind of thing serious, credible journalists say. And if you want career progression, and who doesn't, that means you won't go around saying things that other people don't. And this is something Wilder learned the hard way. Of course, she did nothing wrong, The issue was simply that she might, and that the filtering process, which so often works without really being seen publicly of self-censorship, had malfunctioned. Then there is the stick and the disincentives to produce truthful journalism. The electric fence approach to public relations, as some call it, where whenever you do something you shouldn't, there's an automatic shock. Obviously, you quickly learn your lesson and you self-censor. That's the point. This advert in the New York Times, targeting the Hadid sisters and pop star Dua Lippa, offers one example of such an approach. After extending their solidarity to Palestinians, these three influential women were targeted in an advert which called on them to condemn, of all people, Hamas. Now, clearly it's possible to oppose legal occupations, and yes, apartheid, and yes, decades of ethnic cleansing by Israel, while also not starting with Hamas. Anybody sensible knows that, but the point here is simple. It's about intimidation. And don't you dare make the slightest positive noise supporting Palestine or else there'll be consequences. Now, this electric fence approach is built into the media institutionally through a network of pro-Israel pressure groups who specialize in media monitoring and orchestrating complaints. One is Honest Reporting, a non-governmental organization that monitors the media for bias against Israel. Headquartered in New York City, it has editorial staff based in Jerusalem with affiliates in the US, UK, Canada, France, Brazil, and Australia New Zealand. Another is CAMRA, the Committee for Accuracy in Middle East Reporting in America. It claims to have over 65,000 paying members and that 46 news outlets have issued corrections based on their work after they showered media outlets with complaints and emails. Gershon Gorenberg, a journalist, the American Prospect, has written that camera is Orwellian named and that like others engaged in narrative wars, it does not understand the difference between advocacy and accuracy. In other words, it actively aims to assert a pro-Israel bias in media coverage. Then there are others like Palestinian Media Watch and Memory, the Middle East Media Research Institute, which the novelist Halim Barakat described as a propaganda organization dedicated to representing Arabs and Muslims as anti-Semites. Then there's BICOM, whose advocacy organization in the UK is called We Believe in Israel, and whose current director is Labour NEC member Lou Gatehurst. One campaign by Honest Reporting allegedly saw them send 6,000 emails a day to CNN's chief executive at the time, and following the subsequent meeting they gained, they noted that CNN started to refer to Palestinian terrorism. In other words, the fight was about the very terms the media chooses to adopt. Elsewhere, Honest Reporting claims credit for Reuters' decision to stop referring to Hamas as an organization that seeks an independent state of Palestine. Following a 2004 article published in the British Medical Journal which criticized Israel for a high level of Palestinian civilian casualties and claimed the pattern of injuries suggested routine targeting of children in situations of minimal or no threat, the journal received over 500 responses to its website and nearly 1,000 were sent directly to its editor. In an analysis of the responses published in the journal, Carl Sabah concluded that the correspondence was orchestrated by Honest Reporting and aimed at silencing legitimate criticism of Israel. The BBC has been the subject of Honest Reporting's attention more frequently than most. As one source told Guardian journalist Nick Davies, if the editor of the Today program knows that an item will make the phone ring off the hook, he may think twice about running it. The result of all this is that simply relaying the facts becomes more difficult. And anything other than a pro-Israel bias is seen as providing support for terrorism. This is how censorship works in free societies. It's not an organized conspiracy. It's journalists like Emily Wilder or influential figures like the Hadid sisters and Dua Lippa self-censoring because of positive and negative stimuli, carrot and stick. One side, Israel, is extraordinarily good at this. The other side, Palestine, isn't. As a result, the general public can never get the full picture of what is happening, with even the appropriate words that best explain the situation heavily contested. So if you want to know why Mark Ruffalo apologized for what he said, or Javier Bardem, or Penelope Cruz, it's that metaphorical electric fence. Get involved publicly and there will be consequences for you, which is exactly what the NYT advert was about. Such a strategy is about influencing media coverage so it is no longer accurate, not to mention trying to restrict freedom of political conscience and speech. And frankly, anyone who cares about living in a free society, regardless of their views on Israel-Palestine, should care deeply about that. Such inbuilt censorship, whether it's the filtering system of establishment media or the electric fence of information war, means that the media rarely deviates from the script of governments, repeating their framing and advancing their interests uncritically. One example of this is how British journalists will say that the UK is offering to broker a peace deal or a ceasefire between Israel and the Palestinians. But how can Britain be an honest intermediary when it sells weapons, collaborates militarily, and shares intelligence with Israel? In March this year, the UK's new military strategy declared Israel as a key strategic partner. Such framing by politicians can't be critically examined by the media, as it should be because of self-censorship. To be clear, nobody is stopping them from saying this is absurd or untrue. It's just that they don't do it. Journalists and news organizations are either chasing the carrot or avoiding the stick, with truth and justice for the Palestinian people the casualty. That is the result of intentional strategies pursued by specific interests and frankly, an absence of moral courage in much of the media to stand up to them. But if the media can't tell the truth, particularly while people lose their homes and entire families are killed in their beds, And what precisely is it for? Usually we would associate censorship with authoritarian government, but self-censorship in the media, particularly on the issue of Israel-Palestine, appears to be every bit as insidious and undemocratic. It stops freedom of political conscience, freedom of expression, and most importantly, seems very opposed to human rights.
0: This morning an essay from Caitlin Johnstone titled, Everything Israel Wants to Destroy is Hamas. Her essay is read by Tim Foley.
6: Everything Israel Wants to Destroy is Hamas. Notes from the Edge of the Narrative Matrix. UNRA is Hamas. The hospitals are Hamas. The ambulances are Hamas. The journalists are Hamas. The schools are Hamas. South Africa is Hamas. People tweeting unfavorable things about Israel are Hamas. Basically everyone Israel and its supporters want killed is Hamas. Defunding UNRWA over a handful of alleged Hamas members who don't even work there anymore makes no sense from a humanitarian perspective or a military perspective, but it makes a ton of sense from a genocidal perspective. Cutting off aid to the most aid dependent population on earth would be a psychopathically monstrous act all by itself, even without having caused their extreme needfulness in the first place by backing a genocidal bombing campaign on a giant concentration camp full of children. The Pentagon has admitted that it has no evidence that Iran was behind the attack on a US base on the Jordan Syria border, which killed three American troops. The one and only reason the U.S. government and its stenographers in the Western press mentioned the word Iran a zillion times after the attack was to administer propaganda to manufacture public hostility toward a government long targeted for regime change by the U.S. Empire. Don't talk to me about October 7th. Don't talk to me about hostages. I don't care. I haven't cared for months. Many, many times more Gazans are dying and suffering than the number of Israelis who died and are suffering. That means the death and suffering of Palestinians is much more urgent and matters much more than the death and suffering of Israelis. The only way to disagree with this is to believe Israeli lives are worth much, much more than Palestinian lives. The longer the mass atrocity in Gaza goes on for, the less tragic and worthy of sympathy October 7th becomes. It's already been diminished, to a fraction of the significance it once had, and it's getting smaller and smaller as this nightmare stretches on. This is not the fault of people like me. It's the fault of the people conducting this genocide. You don't get to murder tens of thousands of people and then demand everyone weep over you losing a thousand. That's not a thing. It's so noxious how Israel supporters keep acting like actions a tiny fraction as impactful as what's been happening in Gaza are where all our sympathy and attention should be going, nearly four months after the fact. All of Israel's actions since October 7th have revealed why Hamas did what it did on October 7th. This is the kind of murderousness and depravity Palestinians have been living under from the Nakba on. Israel is so murderous and depraved that one of the most common talking points of its apologists when responding to opposition to the atrocities in Gaza has been, yeah, what did Hamas expect would happen? Frown and find out. That's not a sane or acceptable way for human beings to talk about acts of genocide and the butchery of thousands of children. But Israel apologists think it's normal. Because that's what Israel is. In the eyes of the world... Israel has retroactively legitimized the acts of violence the Palestinian resistance has been inflicting upon it. It has legitimized those acts by showing the world its true face. You should never feel any sympathy for Israel, because Israel uses sympathy as a weapon. It uses weaponized sympathy to justify mass atrocities and endless abuses. When somebody is using a weapon to hurt people, you take their weapon away. Stop giving Israel weapons. Any weapons. Biden supporters literally believe the January 6th riot was worse than what their guy is doing in Gaza. They actually, truly, sincerely believe that. That's how stupid and crazy party politics makes you. Biden is doing all the very worst things Democrats claimed Trump would do if re-elected. If it had come out in 2020 that Trump was plotting a genocide and ethnic cleansing campaign in which his victims would be cut off from humanitarian aid, the shrieking from Democrats would have broken glass. It's good to block virulent Israel supporters on social media. Not so much because they're bad people, though they are but because they're literally trolling for engagement with an acute awareness that time you spend arguing with them is time you're not spending harming Israel's image. Like the astroturf NAFO op, Israel apologists are not merely reacting to posts they disagree with. They're engaging in a conscious effort to protect the information interests of their preferred power structure and have a fleshed out system and a working theory for doing so. They know that draining your time by dragging you into pointless debates, and draining your emotional energy by saying things that upsets you, keeps you from spending your time and energy harming the information interests of their favorite ethnostate.
0: If every day goes like this, how do we survive? And that's it for this edition of the 801 podcast. I'm Kent Garrett. I will talk to you again tomorrow.